Wallace is telling a young girl I vaguely recognize to put down her cell cam and make herself useful. She says nobody wants to see a video of them making applesauce unless it involves a haunted object like the canning kettle possessed by a demon or something. She's with that girl who's always filming when I see her. They're in the kitchen with him, the one from that first stream, the tool with the silver skull ring. They're canning applesauce in the kind of kitchen you'd find in an old Victorian house. I can see water beyond the orchard outside the window over the sink. The ocean? No, smaller. There's land visible on the other side of it. A lake, maybe. The door to the basement is open. When the seismic jolt hits, the kid is downstairs getting the mason jars. Wallace is reciting a poem about Gravensteins to that tool Stephen as she stirs the pot of simmering apples. I know these people with a familiarity that's different from all the other times I've had this dream. I'm watching them, but I'm not. I'm with them, but I'm not. It's like I've always been with them. We're, what's the word for it? Connected. The moment that word comes to me, I know there's never been a time we weren't. And the moment I know it, there's never been a time I didn't know it. None of them are aware of what's about to happen, but I am. I've seen it a hundred times in this same dream. Only there's something different about this one. No, not something. Someone. No, not that either. Someone and something. She's here. That girl. Not the one here with Wallace. The other one. She's never been here when it happens, when they all die. I've seen her somewhere before. But where? And where is she? I know she's here in this dream. I can feel her. But I don't see her. She's the one who changes everything. Why do I get the feeling there's someone else, though? Someone watching all of this. Someone I've seen before. For the first time, I notice a dragonfly perched on the windowsill. It's the same one from the other dreams. Is that it? Is that what's different this time? Is that the other one I can feel watching? Anyone who's lived through a major earthquake knows the deep percussion that precedes the shaking by a fraction of a second. It's unlike any other sound, and there's never any warning. When it hits, there isn't time to think about anything but surviving. They don't know it's a seismic attack when the shaking starts tearing the house apart, but I do. I always do. It gets too lethal too fast for the kid to get up the stairs and out of the house. She's going to try to hide from it. She does this every time. And every time Stephen runs down after her, shouting to Wallace to get out of the house. He's not like he was in that other dream, the one with the demon in the bed. He actually seems to care about what happens to Wallace and the kid. Wallace runs after both of them as the side of the house collapses, the kitchen along with it. Stephen shouts at her again to just get out, but it's too late. She reaches the bottom of the stairs just as one of the support beams collapses, cutting her off from them. 
another beam comes down from above just inches from her face, and the two cross, marking the spot with an X where her foster sister and the man with the silver skull ring on his pinky finger are trapped beneath a pile of rubble. The stairway collapses behind her, and Wallace knows she's next. shaking stops as abruptly as it started. Somehow Wallace is still standing. She's peering through the dim light coming from the tiny window on the western side of the daylight basement. As the thick cloud of dust settles, she spots a patch of red sticking out directly across from it. She assumes it's blood, but it's the tip of her foster sister's sneaker peeking out from beneath the rubble. For the first time since I started having this dream, it dawns on me that I know this shoe. It's what I saw when I looked down after I jumped in that dream with the she-creature, when I realized those weren't my feet. They were this girl's. I may not have known her name, but I know the girl who likes to film everything was buried in her red Chuck Taylors. Wallace can't hear the muffled cries coming from behind the pile of stone through the sound of the explosions. But I can. I always can. She thinks it's gas lines going up, propane tanks, electrical transformers, and the repeating smaller explosions must mean gas tanks are blowing as fires spread to the cars parked outside their homes. She still doesn't know it's an attack, and by the time she does, it'll be too late. It's always too late. A lucid dreamer with a preference for turning dreams into a playground would have turned this story around by now, would have given herself rose-colored glasses or wings or a magic wand. But there's a reason I keep seeing this over and over. I need to know about this, especially these changes I can only feel but know are already in play. Some vague glimmer of hope is trying to replace the dread that always grows from my expectation that it can only change for the worse, even though it's hard to imagine an outcome more dire than the one I've already seen far too many times. I count the seconds left before the lasers cut away the outer stone wall of the daylight basement while Wallace frantically tries to lift one of the beams away from the tomb the kid and Stephen are buried in. Everything she does is pointless, including realizing that she and everyone else is under attack, which dawns on her as that outer wall of the basement falls away to reveal a small army of robots carrying laser weapons she's only ever seen in science fiction movies, and their rotating webcam eyes are pointed directly at her. Instinctively, she stretches out her arms to shield the pile of rubble behind her, as though it was a living, breathing thing 
representing everything she holds dear in this life. The robots raise their weapons. She doesn't waver. She knows what's coming, and still she stands firm, defiant, first and only guardian of the tomb in which her sister and brother-in-arms are laid to rest. If she's going to die, she may as well do it with honor. The lasers point directly at her. Every time I have this dream, the word unflinching is the first thing I write in my dream journal when I describe her. The high-pitched whine of the laser weapons charging fills the air, and Wallace does not close her eyes. She never does. notices a figure dart out of the smoke and ash from just this side of the bomb crater, about a hundred feet behind the squadron of killer robots. It's her. Just beyond the robot's line of sight, she slips through the chasm they've created in the basement's outer wall, boldly walking right alongside them, as if there's no way they could even know she's there. The someone I've been sensing throughout the dream holds her index finger to her lips and darts between Wallace and the robots, silently shushing her. This is all new. All of this is new. The something I've been sensing. One of them, anyway. And I have no idea what this young lady is doing. All I know is I've seen her in dreams twice now. She was the one in the back of the bus the one wearing the name tag at Wallace's wedding. It had a picture of a marina on it. She stands between Wallace and this squadron of weaponized computers and stares at the webcam cyclops in the lead as though she's a matador with an invisibility cape. The whine of laser weapons charging abruptly goes silent. It's replaced by the loud whirr of hard drives processing a large chunk of data. It's the same sound I heard in that dream where I was transferring video files to a thumb drive. But how is this girl doing it? How is she transferring data to these robots? Or is that even what she's doing? The tiny green lights on the weapons blink to red and they lower them in one perfectly synchronized motion. The whirring grows louder, followed by a series of clicks. The kind you hear just before your hard drive gives out, and you get that black screen of death. The robots begin to turn in the same synchronized motion as before, then chaotically, each turning in a different direction. As they begin to topple, one on top of the other, I watch as they become a part of the landscape of rubble around them. Did you do that, Marina? Wallace screams. Her friend nods and says, yes. How? Have you got superpowers you've been holding out on us? Marina says she'll explain later. They need to get Simone and Stephen out from under all that rubble. 
before they run out of air. When Stephen ran down the stairs, he had found Simone wedged into the space between the basement's inner wall and the old stainless steel cast-iron ringer washer that had stood in the corner for over a hundred years. He shielded her from the falling stone and debris with his body, and now both were pinned into the pocket, still alive. I hadn't noticed till just now that the tip of Simone's red sneaker had been wiggling an S.O.S. to them. As the sound of explosions slowly receded, their muffled cries guided Wallace and Marina while they worked together to lift the beams away and dig Stephen and Simone out. As soon as they were freed from their tomb, they all moved to safety from the inevitable aftershocks. They sit out on the lawn overlooking the burned-out city with the water beyond and for the first time I can clearly see it's a bay. I stand with my back to it as I watch Wallace clean dirt and pebbles from the deep gashes in Stephen's back. Through the pain, he, Wallace, and her foster sister listen to Marina explain the discovery she's decided to call the wireless connection defense. She begins by describing a series of synchronicities that rival my own including reading an article about computer brain interface just before going to bed and waking with an old REM song about frequencies stuck in her head, along with a sudden urge to take a walk through the Eureka Forest's massive redwoods to look for the mother tree. She says she was forest bathing in the energy from that tree, the one that sends out to the rest of the forest everything from nutrients to warnings about impending weather events when the quake hit. What followed led her to understand connection in a way that was transformative. Instead of snapping and falling from the earth jolting, the trees in that forest rolled with it, made supple enough from taking in what they needed from the mother tree to just groove with the vibe were her exact words. When she came out of the forest and saw the robots, she just knew how to tap into their wireless connection. And the moment she realized what she knew, she knew there was never a time she didn't know it. She'd always known she could alter her own brain waves to match the frequency of their signal and use it to communicate with them, send data to override their programming not just make herself invisible to them, but boot down their hard drive. She did that all the way back up to the house, booting down every weaponized computer she encountered. Of course, Wallace was the first to ask just what is the frequency. Marina just shrugs and tells her it's the kind of thing you know when you get to it, like spinning the dial on a radio. Stephen chuckles through the pain and points out that what's the frequency Wallace puts a whole new spin on that whole tinfoil hat thing. 
but it's Simone who asks the next most obvious question. Who programmed them to attack in the first place? Marina replies that it's not a who, it's a what. Then she says what I've always known. Those robots aren't from here. She says their energy signature is different from anything she's ever encountered, and for the first time I've got the phrasing I've needed to wrap my head around what I've sensed since I began having this dream. Their energy signature isn't from this earth. It takes a minute for the others to grasp that she doesn't mean they were manufactured in China. I watch their faces as it sinks in that what Marina is saying is, it's most likely what's the frequency earthling. Again, it's Simone who asks the next most obvious question. Where are they from? I didn't expect Marina's response when she replies, Why don't you ask her? She's pointing toward me when she says it. All four of them turn and look in my direction. Can you see her? Wallace says. Simone lifts her cell cam with the newly cracked screen, hoping to get some footage as Marina shakes her head. No, but I can feel her. Stephen asks if maybe it's someone hijacking their Wi-Fi for some free entertainment. Define free, Wallace replies. Because if she can do that, it means it can be done, most likely by anyone, which means it's quite possible none of us are free. Anyone, I wonder, as another sound drifts out of the depths of that dark water behind me, or anything. It hadn't occurred to me until that moment that they might possibly have been looking over my shoulder and weren't talking about me at all. <laughs>